Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. What happens when a museum gets accused of stealing? I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. A lot of us think of museums as the preservers of the world's history. But where those pieces really belong and who they really belong to, that's an ongoing debate. A new topic in that debate is an elaborate gilded necklace on display at Chicago's Art Institute. The piece dates back to 17th century Nepal and was donated to the museum. Now, Nepal wants it back. ProPublica and Crane Chicago Business put out an investigation that found Chicago's Art Institute is lagging behind in efforts to return stolen items. So let's check in with the journalists behind that investigation to learn more. Alyssa Cherney from Crane Chicago Business and Steve Mills, the deputy Midwest editor for ProPublica. Alyssa, let's start with some terminology that seems crucial to understanding how art and artifacts are dealt with in museums. Provenance, what does that mean in this context? That is a fair question and not one I knew before we embarked on this project. Yes. Uh, provenance and not pro- one I knew before preparing for this segment. <laughs> yeah, I think most people don't. Um, in layman's terms, it is the ownership history of an object. So um, research into provenance or provenance is looking at where the object changed hands from its point of origin, which could be potentially you know, dug out of the ground um, in a temple, uh, created by a craftsman, all the way into where it is today. It could go through dealers, auction houses, museums, and the like. And the idea is to have as much documentation as possible so that you can establish that provenance uh, confidently. Okay. Well, this investigation particularly focused on the uh, collection of South Asian artifacts. This were donated to the Art Institute from Marilyn Alsdorf. So, Steve, who exactly were the Alsdorfs? James and Marilyn Alsdorf were a Chicago couple who were famed uh, art collectors. They specialized in art from Southeast Asia, including from Nepal, and spent a lifetime together uh, collecting. Uh, their marriage was you know, revolved in many ways around collecting art. They did it together. They felt that they both needed to agree on a piece before they purchased it. Mm. The the Alsdorf's collection at the Art Institute, it's huge. More than 100 items um, that are just out there on display. Is that right? Oh, yeah. 100 on display, but they have hundreds more um, that the museum has possession of. They're they're off display. How Um, many did you find in your investigation were possibly stolen or had gaps in that history? Yeah, so of the of the larger collection, we know of four objects for which there is some evidence suggesting that they may have been looted or uh, illicitly exported. It's difficult to discern the background of more of those without getting the provenance records. A lot of the information is online, but there are major gaps that we've been never, never been able to see. And until you can examine those, it's hard to say just how many um, objects could be questionable. Mm. I want to take a uh, talk about the the significant piece that's at the center of your uh, your reporting here. It's this gilded necklace. Uh, it's currently on display at the Art Institute. It originates from 17th century Nepal, as we mentioned. Their government 
wants it back. So tell us more about this necklace and describe what it looks like, Alyssa. Yeah, so um, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a it's a exquisite piece. It's gilt copper. Um, it's it's shiny. I mean, frankly, looking at pictures of it on the website, which you can do, just mm-hmm. don't do it justice. When you see it, um, it's in a glass display case in the middle of the Alsdorf galleries, which are on the first floor. Um, it looks like something that is that was commissioned by a king, and that's exactly. You know, it's huge and heavy too. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very thick. It has multiple strands, and it has um, these designs showing other deities. Um, and the the research has shown the Art Institute's own description of it says that it was commissioned by a king in 1650 for an important Hindu goddess, uh, Taleju. And there's an inscription on it in Nuari, which is a an ancient language that was spoken in the region that says that basically um and you can see the inscription online it's it's carved into the necklace and so when nepalis recently have gone to the museum and and seen it they've been shocked to 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 notice it there Mm -hmm. and we're taken aback because that goddess is so revered and and secretive actually in their culture that it felt disrespectful and, and shocking to see it on open display yeah um, and, and it's sort of the, the, the big difference is that for Nepalis, it's a sacred object. Yeah. It's not something that you would see in a museum that is considered just art the way, you know, many Westerners look at it. How long has Nepal been trying to get the Art Institute to return this necklace? Since August 2021. Um, oh, okay. So we're coming up on, you know, almost two years, about 20 months and the talks have been slow and, and something that we've learned through the processes of the reporting this project is just how difficult it is for countries, particularly countries that are underdeveloped and don't have a lot of uh, resources to accomplish this work, face when they are going up against institutions and the burden of proof that is required for them to succeed. Yeah. Steve, there's, there's been, a, a at least in recent years, this wider push from museums to interrogate the the provenance of an item and and just sort of weed out anything that might have been stolen or moved illegally. To their credit, the Art Institute has also done that, right? But you found that they lagged behind other museums. Just explain that. Sure. The Art Art Institute has wrestled with this problem and is making advances. They've assigned, you know, additional curators and have a task force on looking at, you know, provenance issues. But there are other museums... um, the Boston Museum of Fine Art, the San Antonio Museum of Art, that do a little more. And it's something that a lot of museums in the country are wrestling with. And, you know, they're, they're at different places. There are a lot of issues that come into play here. If you, you know, if you just, if somebody comes to you and says, that's something that was stolen from our country and you just hand it over, you know, you're at risk that everybody will start coming in. Right. And, you know, you'll be dealing with this all the time. Yeah. But there is very much across the country, a movement to reckon with these sorts of issues. Let's pull another voice into the conversation. Erin Thompson is an art crime professor at the City University of New York, and she joins us now by phone. Hi, Professor Thompson. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Lovely to be here. You are the only full-time art crime professor in the country. So I've got to ask, what is it that you do exactly? Well, I shouldn't be the other only one because there's so much art crime happening. Yeah. Uh, I specialize in the looting and smuggling of antiquities. Well, not doing it, but trying to prevent it. Right, right. And your focus is on art that is stolen. We know that there are many trafficked pieces that museums around the world are now weeding out of their collections. When we say that they were stolen, 
Professor, what do we mean? Stolen by who and stolen how? Well, it depends on the area, but usually pieces are stolen to feed the art market of collectors who love these things. So you see Nepal really empty of so many of its cultural treasures in the 70s and 80s when a fad for all things Eastern spirituality-related hits the U.S., and people start buying Buddhas by the bucket load. And a lot of those come from shrines and monasteries in Nepal, so they're stolen from their worshippers. Mm-hmm. Also, we're often talking about pieces that are hundreds of years old, if not more. Why are we only now learning that they're stolen? Well, for it's never been a secret to Nepalis. But for many years, they thought there was simply no legal mechanism to reclaim these objects. So it's really only in the past few years that, thanks to the Internet, Nepali activists have been able to track down museum collections and see that one is now there. I have a photograph of it still in the shrine in Nepal before it was stolen. That's a match. And have gained the confidence to say, you know what, I'm going to ask for this back and I'm not going to let museums tell me. Eh, our provenance research is good enough. You know, the, just this past uh, October, the um, Smithsonian gave Nigeria back 29 Benin bronzes that had been stolen in a ninth, in an 1897 British raid. And Germany did the same with their Benin bronzes. The Art Institute itself was involved in returning two pieces from the Alsdorf collection to Thailand and Nepal. So there has been some progress, Right. Well, who is that progress due to? Has it been the museums looking into their own hearts and giving things up? No, it's because the public is asking questions Mm. and paying attention. So I encourage us all to be ethical consumers of museums. You know, if I can ask where my grapes and my coffee and my chocolate came from, I can ask where the art on display in my museum came from. How high is the threshold to prove something is illegal and, and should be given back to its place of origin? There's a difference between the legal threshold and, I would say, the moral threshold. Okay. Uh, the Art Institute, for example, is saying about three of the objects uh, from the Alsdorf collection that, oh, Nepal hasn't filed an official request yet. But that doesn't change the evidence that they're stolen. So you really have to ask what's right to do rather than have all of the tiny boxes been checked, I think. And so much of the art that we see at museums, you know, whether it's the Art Institute or the the Met in New York, they're donated or they're lent by art patrons like this family we just talked about, the Alsdorfs. These are people who presumably they, they paid thousands, if not millions of dollars to own these items. So how difficult does it become then for, for the ownership to be challenged and get the items repatriated? You know, I like to think of it that we, the public and taxpayers, are really the ones who are paying for these objects because these owners are donating them to museums and getting tax deductions in return. So we're subsidizing Mm -hmm. the donation of, in times, looted objects. So before we let you go, Professor, as we've said, this art's being preserved in museums around the world, including here in Chicago. So what is at stake if museums don't do the work of returning them? I think museums will betray their core missions of preserving the world's heritage and educating the world if they're 
helping aid the destruction of heritage through looting for sale in the market. And they're concealing the truth about these objects, where they came from, who loves them, and who wants them back. Aaron Thompson is a professor of art crime at the City University of New York. Professor, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. You know, one thing that's important to note is that it's hard to know just how the Alsdorfs, you know, assembled their collection. Mm -hmm. You know, they were collecting at a time, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, when where standards were very loose and they probably did things that they thought were fine. And, but we just don't know enough about each piece that they have put in their collection and standards have changed considerably since then. If you're just tuning in, Steve Mills and Alyssa Cherney, journalists investigating this, they're still with us. Alyssa, you heard our, our conversation there with the professor, your thoughts, is there an incentive for museums to not look too closely at the prominence of art? I think there is. I think it's a bit of a balancing act. Um, the mu- dynamics that museums face are difficult, and they want to educate the public and expose uh, people to cultures and experiences that they've never had before, and that is a, a worthy mission. Um, I think that they also are heavily reliant on donors to help them make their collections incredible and to attract the crowds and um, the financial support that keeps them going. And so there is a fear of setting a precedent. I I don't think this is a secret. I think you can see if you look at some historical coverage, uh, for example, of one of the pieces that we mentioned in the story that you brought up, this Thai lintel, a decorative beam in a temple that was returned um, in the late 80s. There was open discussion from the Art Institute at the time about not wanting to set a precedent of other nations coming forward and demanding objects Mm. back that could lead to their galleries. And I wonder how long that process took. That took a long time. Um, A a Thai prince came to Chicago to help negotiate. Um, You know, I think just the way that the public looks at this issue and the perception of it has evolved tremendously since then. It's harder today, I think, to get folks to talk about that perspective. Steve, how's the Art Institute responding to your findings? Um, Well, we haven't heard from them since the story was published, but they have said that they are adding people to do provenance research there and that they are committed to making sure that the collection is ethical. Mm. Uh, And they were responsive when it came to you doing the research to publish the story? Yes. They answered, you know, a lot of our questions. I think we had more than 50 questions. Um, And... You know, we also tried to, I think it's important to note, we tried to get in touch with the um, descendants of the Alsdorfs, but um, both James and Marilyn have passed away. Uh, but we, you know, their their relatives declined to comment uh, for our story. As did a lawyer who represents Marilyn Alsdorf's trust. Okay. Well, what is next for the, the pieces in the Alsdorf collection, specifically the ones that you found had that gap in collection history, ownership history? I think it'll be particularly interesting to watch what happens with this necklace that we've been talking about. Um, A particularly sore spot is that it remains on display. That is highly offensive to people who have called for its return. Mm -hmm. Um, So how the Art Institute continues to handle that remains to be seen, as well as the other objects that Nepali activists have come forward. Um, Now, while they aren't necessarily making a legal claim, they are making the ethical argument that they should be returned. And then there's the broader question of, do you need to look at the entire Alsdorf collection? Are there Mm -hmm. enough questions about how they've, you know, put it together that the whole 
collections should be examined Which we said in is a what, thorough way. Like a hundred items? Well, it's hundreds of items. Hundreds. It's hundreds of items. There are a hundred or so on display. Hundreds or so on display. Earlier this year, Steve, uh, ProPublica launched its repatriation project. Can you share more about that work? Sure. That was looking at um, Native American remains that are at museums around the country and at, and at other um, institutions. And there you have a sort of a similar dynamic. Something that was accepted for a long time is now being reexamined and the claims of tribes are being given much more credence than they were before. We'll leave it there. That is ProPublica's Steve Mills and Alyssa Cherney of Crane Chicago Business. You can read their latest investigation at ProPublica.org and at ChicagoBusiness.com. Steve and Alyssa, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Meha Ahmed and edited by Linnea Dominic and Ethan Schwab. If you liked what you heard, give us a rating. It helps other folks find us. Thanks. Talk to you again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.